colleagues at the sound desk, do you have a copy of this back there? Because I don't have the clicker. Okay, cool. If you can just follow along. I was so grateful this morning we sang Be Thou My Vision. It's, if not one of my favorite, if not my very favorite, one of my top favorite hymns. It's a very, very rich hymn of the church. And that line about high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. I mean, I just, uh, and if that line is in there, that phrase, high king of heaven, comes into that hymn twice. So may we continue to birth him in our day, songs like that, that honor the kingship of Jesus. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We're entering this morning into a, a series of messages on Sunday mornings about uh, Christ coming, his advent, that means coming, coming to us. Uh, we're going to look, as I understand it, at three aspects of who he is in coming to us. He's king, that's what we want to talk about this morning. He's also prophet and priest in uh, we'll be looking at the next couple of weeks in the lead-up. So if we can turn together, I didn't get the text onto the PowerPoint, so you can do what they did for many, many generations in Israel and in the history of the church. Just listen. You don't have to have it digitally shining on the front wall. And I'm going to read some selected texts in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 uh, to highlight what we want to talk about. I will be jumping over a few things because there's so much in here we can't do every bit of it. So Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That little verse is going to become very important in a moment. With that, Matthew opens up an extended lineage or genealogy of Christ. It, goes, it covers 42 names, 42 generations. At the end of the genealogy, there's the story of Joseph and Mary and the miraculous birth of Mary's baby Jesus. That story deserves a sermon in itself. So this morning, we won't be highlighting that one very much. So just bear in mind, genealogy is the way Matthew begins and then come to chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi is what it says in Greek, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. Significant. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. can also be translated, we saw his star in the east, either way. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Worth pondering why they were troubled. We will come back to that. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men, or magi, secretly and ascertained from them 
what time the star had appeared. The timing of the star is part of the point here. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may too, so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I'd call that joy. If you rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. I was so glad this morning we had an extended time simply to worship King Jesus. That's what's going on here. They fell down. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country, which we don't know where that was, just that it was in the east, may have been Persia. They departed to their own country by another way. We're looking in these next minutes at the coming of the king particularly Matthew's version of what is going on here. We want to see several things, one of which is that the coming of the king means a new beginning. Seven times, seven, seven times in the book of Matthew, we could talk them up, Matthew specifically calls Jesus king or quotes people who call him king. Seven times, five plus two, we read about Jesus being called son of David, which was political and spiritual code in those days for king, king of Israel. He's born, as the magi say, born king of the Jews. That's at the beginning of the story. And then toward the end, and in a scene where it's words that point to the end of history, at the end of the age, he will sit, Christ himself says, on his glorious throne. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne and all the nations are gathered before him to give account. Okay, So at the beginning, he's born king, and at the end, he sits on his glorious throne. This book, Matthew, is about Christ the king. But notice the spin. I debated using that word spin. It sounds like what sometimes dishonest journalists do to misrepresent something. Well, I want to suggest Matthew's giving us a Holy Spirit spin on what this story is all about. Notice the spin that Matthew puts on his story. He spins it by beginning with a genealogy. Quote, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes, as we noticed a moment ago, from Abraham all the way up to the birth of Jesus himself. That is 42 generations. Why is this 
theological or spiritual spin. Here's the reason. Genealogies in scripture, genealogies for the Jews, and by the way, Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience to assure them, convince them, uh, inform them that Jesus of Nazareth was and is indeed the promised Messiah of Israel that the law and the prophets pointed to. That's Jesus. So he is using a signal right out of the Old Covenant scriptures to show them this. Genealogies are the trademark of a key book from the Old Covenant scriptures. They're the trademark of the book of Genesis. And Genesis is the book of beginnings. Matthew is wanting his readers to see that the coming of this king is going to mean a new beginning, like a new Genesis. Now let's go very briefly to Genesis and perhaps we can see what he's doing. Genealogies, this trademark of the book of beginnings, appear ten times in the book of Genesis. The whole book of Genesis is built really around genealogies. Here's three samples out of the ten. We have a picture of a scribe copying uh, the Hebrew scriptures. Here's three examples from Genesis Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And it introduces a long list of names. Later, these are the generations of Noah. And then names. Much later in Genesis, these are the generations of Jacob. Chapter 37, verse 2. Generations being associated with that book. Remember, he's writing for people that understood the scriptures, that knew the scriptures. When they start hearing things that remind them of that book, namely Genesis, they're going to start thinking beginnings. This is how Matthew sees the story he is about to tell his readers. This is how Matthew sees the story he's telling us. His point is this. What I'm about to tell you is not an extension on the old covenant. It's a new covenant. Hence, when the early church put together what we now know as the New Testament canon, it wasn't just a question of which books went in, and there was debate over that. They also had to settle on the sequence, the arrangement. Why didn't they begin with Colossians at the very, very beginning? You could make a case for that. In the, you know, he is the image of the invisible God. It says in Colossians, for from him all things were created. Would have, would have made a logical place to begin. Well, they didn't begin with Colossians. They didn't begin with the epistles at all. All They began with the gospels. Well, they could have begun with John. In the beginning was the word. Why did they put Matthew first? I think they had a reason. I think they had a spirit-led reason 
And it was to show this is not, a, it's not taking the old covenant and stapling on a supplement to it. Okay, cross that concept out of our brains. This is a new beginning. It's a new covenant. Hence, the New Testament, New Te- Testament is another word for covenant. The New Testament begins with this genealogy of Christ. Signal, point, new beginning. It's more than a new, a new version of the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is what introduces us to the monarchy in Israel. There's Saul, he didn't turn out too well. Then there's David, and then there's Solomon. We could have begun, he could have started it in a way to, to hook us back to First and Second Samuel. No, he doesn't say, hey, I'm going to give you a new book of First Samuel. He says, I'm giving you a new book of Genesis. This is a new beginning of that magnitude. A new beginning for Israel. And a new beginning for the world. Hence, the first people that come and worship are Gentiles. King Jesus is God himself breaking in. When Velma and I were in Canada, I remember coming across a, or it was a book I saw reviewed, or I think it was a book review. And I don't think I ever got hold of the book. But it was written by someone uh, in Canada that did, had had done for many years, like decades, professional marriage counseling. And the title of the book, well, I'll tell you in a second what the title was. Someone had asked him, in your years of counseling, are there phrases, things people say, husbands and wives, that when they come to you because they're having marital tension, are there things that you have heard numbers of times that sort of keep surfacing? Somebody asked him that, and he said, oh, yeah, there's one doozer turned into the title of a book. You're just like your mother. Okay? We won't ask for a show of hands. He says, if I had five dollars, it was Canadian dollars, if I had five dollars for every time I've heard a, you know, especially when husband and wife both come in together, they're sitting there. And so he says, well, what's going on? And someone, one of them will start saying something, and then the other one blurts out, you're just like your mother. You know what happens? And, and sometimes that can be the case. We, you know, the, the First Peter chapter 1 talks about being rescued from the vain ways inherited from our mothers. Except it says fathers. When that happens... What's happening is we are, our present or our future is being determined by our past. Maybe the dynamics in the family from where, where you grew up have still got hold of you and you're still reacting in those old tram lines and those old grooves and you can't seem to step out of them and respond in a new way. So it's often tragically true. We're just like our parents. We reflect the kind of family we grew up in, some ways in ways that are not helpful. The point Matthew wants us to make, wants us to see, wants us to see, God has sent a new king, and he's going to bring a new beginning. When David came in, things were not like they were under Saul. 
We know that David had serious issues down the line, Bathsheba and all that came out of that. But you know, um, from the middle of 1 Samuel until the middle of 2 Samuel, there was a time up to, up to Bathsheba where he was a godly man and there was, he had victory over his enemies. There was worship. You get that especially in Chronicles. It was a good time. He brought, David did, a new beginning now, tragically, sin got hold of him, so now God sends a new David, Christ. And he brings the new beginning. The past need not determine the future. I think for some of you this morning, maybe that's why the Lord brought you here, to hear those words. Your past need not determine your future. Why? Because the king has come. It's a new beginning. It's Genesis again. We're partway there. Stay with us. That's point one. The coming of the king means a new beginning. King Saul's not around anymore. King David is. Now it's King Jesus. The coming of the king means it's time. If you think back from what we read of the Magi, the idea of timing... Ascertain the, the time when the star arose and all that. Timing seems to be part of this story. The coming of the king means it's time. Where is he who has been born king of the, of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Note that. His star. It announces him. But why a star? In the Old Testament, stars, like everything else, have theological meaning. Genesis 1. When God makes the stars, it's Genesis 1 verse 14, notice carefully what it actually says. He creates them to be, quote, signs. Interesting word, signs. Well, signs for something very specific. Signs for appointed times. The word there is moed. Moed, Hebrew word. And that's really the best translation. Many of the our English Bibles, NIV, uh, ESV that I use, they say seasons. Now, seasons is an okay translation, except for the fact when we hear the word seasons, we think summer, fall, winter, spring, the cycle. And what the word then really originally meant, and I'll give you a couple examples, was times that God appointed for specific things to happen, not just warm weather or cold weather, or that's not the, that, wasn't, that wasn't the deal. It was times appointed for specific instructions of worship. Here's some examples. When God brings that first Passover, remember in Egypt, the blood on the doors, and then he says, by the way, this isn't a one-shot flash in the pan. I want you to do this every year. So Exodus 13.10, you shall therefore keep the Passover at its moed. The same Hebrew word is used there from Genesis 1.14. You shall shall therefore keep the Passover at its appointed moed 
time. Okay? How would they know the appointed time? Well, the answer to that is back in Genesis. By the stars. Stay with us. Another example in Leviticus. These are the appointed times, it's moed in the plural, of the Lord for holy convocations. The stars were Israel's timekeeper. They were, it was like their diary. We keep diaries to know when I have, a, have an appointment so you don't forget. <laughs> sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. <laughs> so we, we know when we have to go to the dentist or whatever. What we see there in Genesis, what we see there in the Torah, like Exodus and Leviticus and so forth, and what we're going to see in Matthew in a moment, is Stonehenge on its head. It's the reverse of Stonehenge. Now, there's different theories, as you may know. I've always been sort of fascinated by the Stonehenge thing. and There's different theories what was going on there when they built Stonehenge. Now, one of the theories, is, I think it's sort of the mainstream theory now, it had to do with some kind of sun worship cult. And to be able to give pri- proper reverence for the sun in that cult, they needed to know its movements and when it would rise on the solstice and the equinox and different things. And so apparently if you study the layout of the stones and the ring and whatnot, there's ways you can predict the, the, the rising and the setting of the sun at certain key times of the year. So what you've got with Stonehenge is this. People make the calendar. The calendar was the ring of stones, okay? People make the calendar so they will know when to worship the sun. God says, you've got it backwards. I made the sun and the moon and the stars so you'll know when to worship me. Does that sound like a better system? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Matthew are the reverse of Stonehenge. It takes all that and turns it on its head. The, the, st- <coughs> the stars, pardon me, were Israel's calendar. It's time for the Passover, the Pesach. It's time for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the appointed time, the Mo'ed. It's time for the Day of Atonement. I'm thankful for that because that was the forgiveness of sins day. It's time to come to God in some special way. It's time. Now, in feast after feast, in celebration after celebration, in holy convocation after holy convocation, how did Israel know? We have a picture. That's how they knew. They just simply counted sunrises, sunsets. They kept track of the motions of the stars because all of that in Genesis 1.14 is the calendar. Are you with me so far? God set that in place as their calendar. Now, we come to Matthew with that backdrop. And what do we see? We saw... His star. I think we have another picture I drew last night. Really good. 
we saw his star. Not a star saying it's time for Passover, although Passover would come in the ministry of Jesus. The Last Supper was the Passover meal. Became the Lord's Supper. We saw his star. This is something now beyond the old covenant, a new new heavenly sign for a new appointed time. This star said, not gather once again for the Feast of Tabernacles or something like that. This star said, it's time to search out the king. The Magi, Gentiles, somehow understood this. There's all kinds of fascinating uh, conjecture as to how they knew. Here's one little tantalizing hint. If they were, as many suggest, from Persia, there's a lady named Esther who lived right there. And a substantial, substantial sized Jewish community. And it might have been that the residue of the knowledge of God and the customs of Israel, which they had to really keep it under wraps because of the persecution, but maybe somehow the residue of their presence there had left this knowledge. And now these guys, the Magi, somehow knew. We, there's lots we don't know. It's time to search out the king. They knew that. It's time to load up the roof rack on your car. It's time to load up your camel. It's time to cross borders. Where's Sylvia? Are you still here, Sylvia? Very good. I loved your little testimony. You're crossing some borders. Good on you. For the Magi, it was time to cross borders. For them, it was, among other things, geographical borders. Maybe for some of us, it's going to be emotional borders. Maybe the Lord's been saying to you, I want you to do ABC. And you come along and you go, oh, wait a minute. Maybe it's time to cross the border. I'm Canadian, and I've had all kinds of adventures with our friends at UKBA. I have various formula. I fill in my own meanings of those words. Okay, B-A. U-K-B-A. They're all about borders. These guys had to cross some borders. Emotional, geographical borders. Emotional borders. Attitudinal borders. Has anyone here ever said, no way? Okay, someone asked you to do something or consider something or whatever. Maybe the Holy Spirit asked you and you said, no way. That's called an attitudinal border. Maturity borders. Maybe it's simply a place in your life there's some growing up needs to happen. I'm a grandfather and I've got maturity borders. Or maybe I'll give you a fill-in-the-blank one. What kind of border might the Lord be calling you to cross? Because when he put that sign in the heavens, it said, it's time. The coming of the king. Finally, the coming of the king means come and worship. Another one of my recent pictures I love this picture. I wish I knew who painted it, kidding aside. 
elegantly done. The only difficulty is that the statement Matthew uses describing the scene of the worship of the Magi, it sounds like it was a bit more kind of full on. It says they fell down and worshipped. And the word there, proskuneo, usually meant like flat on their faces. <laughs> I kind of like that idea. And sometimes we need to be in that place with the Lord. But it does show adoration and bringing in their gifts. Let's revisit the text itself. And magi came from the, and magi from the east came, and going into the house they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, what are your treasures? Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The point of the scene that Matthew sets out in front of us here is basically this. The Magi are Gentiles. And they, surprise, surprise, the, who is the, according to the story, who were the first people to worship? In Luke's version, you get the angels worshiping, Luke chapter 2, but Matthew, he talks about, okay, fine, glad the angels are worshiping, you know, singing in the, in the sky, but uh, down here on earth, who's worshiping? Well, you know who's first in line, a bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, rebuke to Matthew's own people, Israel, it was Gentiles. <laughs> There's an irony there, we'll come to that in a second. The point of the scene is that the Magi are Gentiles, and they are the ones that bow down to Christ the King. This recalls something from Israel's past. Back in Second Chronicles, and all the kings of the earth came to Solomon with silver and gold, garments, myrrh, and spices. You almost see a hint there, don't you, of what goes on with the coming of King Jesus. This scene also points to the future. Psalm 86, verse 9, a bit of a favorite for me. All the nations you have made. Interestingly, who made the nations? They're not simply accidents of history, according to that verse. God wants there to be nations. Second, I mean, Revelation chapter 21, the, the kings of the earth come into the new Jerusalem, bringing the glory of the nations. So Psalm 86, all the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. This scene in the house with Mary and Joseph and the baby also anticipates the church's mission. The same Jesus who is a young child here <laughs> grows up and he becomes the Messiah. He dies for our sins and he rises again from the dead. Before he ascends into heaven, he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all Nations. This phrase, all nations, all nations, all nations, keeps coming through. It's the global authority of King Jesus. King of Israel, yes, but he's king of the nations. What are we doing? What can we do to further his cause among the nations? Now, to bring it back to us in the moment, 
those ideas are somewhat in the future, working among the nations to see the nations come and worship Christ. Amen. A thousand amens. But according to the way Matthew plays out the story in front of us, there's an irony in the present. Here it is. When Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, why were they troubled? Herod's an interesting figure. He is called king. It's very debatable whether he had any really legitimate, I mean spiritually legitimate claim to that title. First off, (laughs) it's very uncertain whether he was a Jew. And according to Deuteronomy 17, you had to be from the the people of Israel to be the king of Israel. You have a look, Deuteronomy 17. More than that, according to Genesis, Genesis 49, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. So two times set of question marks over our friend uh, Herod. So whatever you do with him, he certainly seems to feel threatened at the prospect of another king. He styled himself as king, and the idea of a new king was not good news. But there's a bit more of a question, so his, his apprehension maybe makes sense in a perverse way. But there's a, a broader question, why were the people of Jerusalem troubled? Was it they didn't understand, they didn't have their eyes on God, they were thinking, what's this going to look like, how's it going to play out, what will it require of me? They were troubled. So while they're being troubled, while they're worrying, (laughs) representatives from outside Israel, from the nations, from the uncircumcised, from the Gentiles come, and what do they do? We're told they fell down and worshipped him. You see the stark contrast. Herod and the people in Jerusalem, no way. And then Gentiles falling down and worshiping. The the irony is this, and it leads to a question that I want us to ponder as we conclude. Israel doesn't worship, and the Gentiles do. So who are we like? Are we like the people in Jerusalem, or are we like the Magi? Do we see that next to Christ nothing else matters. It's as simple as that. What do we need to come and lay at his feet? Today, 2nd of December 2012, what's my gold? My frankincense. You know, frankincense was incense, but it wasn't just incense. It was frankincense. It was really expensive. Myrrh. It was like a perfume. A few years ago at the college, we got some, one of the students went online to get us some myrrh. I said, could somebody research it on Google? Maybe we could try and buy some. And he came back to me the next morning and says, I researched it, but I don't know if you really want to buy it. (laughs) You can get myrrh, but the real stuff is very, very costly. 
those are what the things that the Magi come with. And they lay it down in front of this baby. They might not even know his name yet. But the star says it's time. The star says, God says in the heavens, here he is. And they come with gold and frankincense and myrrh. What are our gold, our frankincense, and our myrrh? Maybe it's things that matter supremely to us. If Christ is the king, he matters supremely. Maybe it's time for a trade-off in some of our hearts. I think that one applies to me. Things that start to matter more than they should. Maybe our gold, frankincense, and myrrh is things that we think we can't live without. Well, if he's the king, we can live on him. He's the bread of life. Now, let me, one final example. This sounds a little bit different. You're going to think, gee, that doesn't sound like gold, frankincense, and myrrh to me. Well, it might be. Maybe our gold, frankincense, and myrrh could be situations that aren't very good at the moment. And we look at it and we think, this is something in my family or in my life or in my emotions or my whatever, and it's such a mess, it's beyond fixing. Do you know how you can use that thing to worship Christ? You can. What you can do is bring it to him and say, I believe you're the king who brings the new beginning. And I believe you're able to fix this. So maybe the guy next to me has got some actual literal gold and he's putting that in front of you. I'm bringing you a seemingly unrepairable, unfixable situation and I want this to honor you by me handing it to you because it's my way of saying you're able to fix it, Jesus. You with me? What's our gold, our frankincense, and our myrrh this morning? Let's review these points. And then I want us to take one minute, one 30, 60, 30 second minute, one 60 second minute and look at the picture from a moment ago of the Magi. But to review, because of the coming of the king, if you didn't take notes yet, you can still get the points. Our past need not determine our future. Maybe that's the good news some of you needed to hear today. You're just like your father or your mother or whatever. Our past need not determine our future. Second, it's time to cross some borders. It's time. The stars are out. What are the borders? And let's give him our gold, our frankincense, and our myrrh today. Let's take a minute and look at the picture. Let's let the Lord speak to you.